the health space online, which, which you occupy so well, you'll notice a lot of absolute grifters who will try to reduce every health problem, no matter how complicated, down to if you do this, you won't get cancer, heart disease, brain, brain tumors. And the thing is, you, you will because we're human. I feel it's getting more and more difficult for, you know, the general person who doesn't have scientific education or the tools to be able to sift through all of this information. If I make a TikTok video or an Instagram reel where I absolutely lie about something, there's no penalty for me. I will get all the clicks and all the views. And I noticed as a conspiracy theorist, particularly during COVID, but I was writing about them a long time before then, that there's no consequence for them being wrong. They grow their audience every time. Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We are neurologists, scientists, and authors of two best-selling books and parents to two amazing humans. In a world where our understanding of brain health is constantly evolving, join us as we unravel the mysteries of the human brain. Through captivating conversations, insightful interviews, and thought-provoking discussions, we empower you with the knowledge and tools to optimize brain function and prevent cognitive decline. From nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, to building cognitive resilience and the impact of technology, we explore the fascinating connections between brain health and other facets of our lives. Get ready to unlock the potential of your brain and embrace a life of vitality. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining us for an incredible episode. Today, our guest is David Robert Grimes, a scientist and author with a keen interest in the public understanding of science. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Irrational Ape, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theories, and Propaganda. He writes on science and society for outlets including The Guardian, The Irish Times, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The BBC, the Financial Times, and the New York Times, and has emerged as a formidable ally in the battle against misinformation, dedicating his efforts to dispel myths and promote evidence-based knowledge. His approach combines rigorous scientific methodology with the persuasive power of clear, accessible communication. By engaging with the public, policymakers, and fellow scientists alike, David not only confronts current misconceptions, but also fosters a culture of critical thinking that is essential for the discernment of fact from fiction. It was such a pleasure speaking with him, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. To cause dissonance, to cause cognitive dissonance is the very purpose of the brain. Its purpose is to find the unusual, the different, the not patterned, because if it was patterned, we didn't really need a brain. You can create in enough lower level structures that maintain you within patterns. So I love the fact that you're causing enough dissonance to get some hate mail. <laughs> we haven't done that as much. We've been very gentle and kind and calm. With that said, let's get into the dissonance. I love it. I'll start with this. You can actually tear us apart. We're <laughs> vegans. I'm, but I'm not going to tear you apart for that. That's fine. No, no, no. no, no. But we, we take pride in the sense that we know why we're vegans. We also know that veganism is not the ultimate healthy way to live. It has to be a very planned, structured, scientific, data-driven, evolving system that's driven by, by statistics and numbers and outcome measures instead of these patterns that people try to silo you in. I think you have to realize the purpose of, of different evidence strands. For example, there are very good ethical arguments for veganism. 
which I totally understand. There's very good alternative arguments for, say, vegetarianism or flexitarianism, depending on reducing your carbon footprint. The only thing that I will always catch people up for, and it's the oversimplification thing, is if people say an all-vegan diet or an all-carnivore diet is going to cure all these diseases, and I'll be like, well, it won't. In the health space online, which, which you occupy so well, you'll notice a lot of absolute grifters who will try to reduce every health problem, no matter how complicated, down to if you do this, you won't get cancer, heart disease, brain tumors. And the thing is, you, you will because we're human. We all die of something eventually. We have to put some ethical value on food. We absolutely do because we live yeah. in a world that is of limited resources. I'm a little bit flexitarian as in I, I tend to limit my meat consumption, but I still occasionally love a steak, and which I know has the carbon footprint, <laughs> a terrible one. So I try to make it a rarity rather than an everyday occurrence. But, you know, there I could probably do better, to be fair. No, 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 no. That's 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 exactly right. Yeah. I mean, we really have to separate when when we make the argument for the environment versus animal rights versus health, and even within those, there has to be some nuance and some understanding. Yeah. Not extrapolating beyond the data. You don't even do justice to the cause. You're going to be found wrong ten days later, or fifteen days later, or a year later, and then the, the nature of human mindset is they're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I love that with you. You really focus on the thinking process, on the data, on how much you can pull out of the data and not more. That's a critical thing. So I uh, would love to kind of figure out what got you to this, the way you live your life. I, I guess the simple answer to your question is that I'm pretty stupid. My background is physics. I trained as a physicist before I got into health. Yeah, science. those physicists are so dumb. They're so dumb. <laughs> well, we are. We are, but in one way, because it is, it's, I mean, now I teach, I teach biology and I teach health science and... And it's different. There's so many concepts you have to know. In physics, you're literally go, if I bang this thing into bat this thing, what will happen? But what's nice about it is you're talking about reducing things to mechanisms. What happens? A lot of health research is associative rather than causative. If you find an association, unless you have a mechanism to underpin that association, you've just found an association. Now, that is exacerbated for me because I now teach statistics and I teach statistical inference. So I'm like, you can find correlations with anything. What I want to find out is do you have a good story, a good reason for suspecting that? Science is all about that. Having ideas, having plausible ideas based on things that you know, and then testing those ideas to see if they work. And only getting more complicated when you've shown at a, at a low level that this is plausible, let's keep going. Sometimes in health science, and when you read headlines, People will do some study where coffee is associated with you know, hyperactivity or something. I'm just taking a random example. Or they've seen an association and they will run out with a giant headline saying, it's obvious ADHD is being caused by coffee. And I'm like, no, no, you cannot make that extrapolation. Uh, you cannot, you have to check your data. You have, but not just check the data. You have to check the story you're telling, the mechanism. One of the things about science is you have to look at everything that could prove you wrong. Everything about your experiment that might undermine your results and sometimes we're so excited about results we kind of forget to do that part i rain on people's parade a lot because my other area of research is meta research and a lot of the time i have to look at published studies with a critical eye and i'm, I'm asked to do this as part of my job and to evaluate health technologies or whatever else and i look at things and i go wow that study everyone loves it's terrible i wouldn't let my undergraduates publish that and that sounds really harsh but unfortunately methodology is really important Amazing. Yeah, you're absolutely right i'm so glad that uh, you know you are a voice of reason when it comes to understanding science as you have addressed on your social media and in your fantastic book good thinking people are faced with quotations and concepts on a daily basis especially now that everyone has access to 
social media. It's difficult to sift through this avalanche of information that is coming to the general public and especially about critical decisions like what do you eat? How do you live? What do you get exposed to? I feel it's getting more and more difficult for, you know, the general person who doesn't have scientific education or the tools to be able to sift through all of this information. I know this is a very loaded question, but I think we could actually start from that meta level. Say, for example, if you're a person, you have kids, you have some people you're taking care of, you're just a general nice person living in this chaotic world. How do you sift through all this information? How do you know what is good, what is bad? And I'll preface it by putting a little bit of pressure on you. <laughs> no, that, that wasn't enough pressure. We have to amp no, it up. No, no, okay, no. Way go. more than that. Right. Way more than that. I really think that this is going to sound so weird. TikTok and social media is the greatest discovery of our time. It's got 99.9999% garbage, but 0001% gold coming from corners that people would never even guess. That means that somebody created a clear logical sequence that actually lifted consciousness. It's that 0.01% is critical because in the past, one of your countrymen, I believe John Locke, I think uh, philosopher, uh, he could have philosopher, been. Yeah, 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 yeah. He would create this incredible thought process, but it would take 200 years for it to, or a hundred years for it to be seen by Franklin and then maybe Jefferson. Now that speed of coming to the surface is much faster, but it's dependent not on some esoteric guy in a lab, but for people that communicate the logical sequence clearly and cleanly like you. I think the problem you're alluding to is a problem of curation. I agree with you in part and I disagree in another. And I'm going to try to answer both your questions with a lack of satisfaction to both of you, I'm sure. But let me try. <laughs> I love it. I think the problem is, to paraphrase Shakespeare, that much of the internet is a tale of sound and fury signifying nothing. You go to TikTok, it's a lot of people dancing or taking weird videos of our cats. That's cool. There's also a lot of gold out there. And the paradox of the era in which we now live is that essentially the entire repository of human knowledge, everything, is available at our fingertips. But that's also the curse. And the curse is curation because we actually are very bad judges of what information is reliable and reputable and what is total garbage. And we have a load of cognitive biases and psychological mechanisms that make us really like garbage because garbage tends to be much easier to digest. It tends to be simple explanations for complex phenomena. We all engage to some degree in motivated reasoning. We see a headline we like, or an mm. article that agrees with our preconceptions, and we share that. We don't read the thing that might debunk that. We don't read the thing that says no. Because we've become curators of our own media, many years ago, you had at least your newspapers and, and televisions, to some extent, had to at least fact check to a basic degree. We can argue how well or, or, or poorly they did that. But if something was in the New York Times, it's probably okay, but they have to issue a correction if it was wrong. If I make a TikTok video or an Instagram reel where I absolutely lie about something, there's no penalty for me. I will get all the clicks and all the views. And I noticed as a conspiracy theorist, particularly during COVID, but I was writing about them a long time before then, that there's no consequence for them being wrong. They grow their audience every time. I would say this has been a human problem forever. My Irish countryman here back in the day, Jonathan Swift, said that falsehood flies and truth limps after it. So he was writing in the 1700s about the fact that, you know, gossip and rumors and, and falsehoods go much further. And the corrective force of truth came behind it. And we now have quantitative data that correctives are way less effective. We know that people are more likely to share content if it agrees with their preconceived notions or if it induces outrage and disgust. So say I said tomorrow that vegan diets are causing cancer. That will disgust people. It'll anger them enough that that would be shared. It's wrong, by the way, if anyone is listening. It's absolute reductive nonsense. But it's a nice headline, 
if I wanted to say that. If I say sugar causes cancer, again, wrong. If anyone comes in at the wrong moment, they don't want to think I'm saying this. It is very easy to scare people and it is very easy to villainize and simplify narratives. So yes, social media has wonderful things going for it and like Wikipedia got me through my thesis, right? I mean, we have wonderful places where information is stored. PubMed is a lovely resource. There's so many good things. But it takes training to be able to distinguish between the signal and the noise. And there is now so much noise and it can be very hard to get the signal. So while I agree with you entirely that there's, there, this is a, a wonderful opportunity long-term, short-term, it's a nightmare. Because unless you can learn to distinguish your sources, you're in trouble. <laughs> we are where we are, not because it was the path of least resistance, but actually the path of reason. Some of the rights we've gained were not ones that would have evolutionarily, socially or otherwise, would have manifested if it wasn't for the power of reason. Slavery, women's rights, gay and lesbian and LGBT and all these other issues. These are not popular concepts. These are not large enough power structures that would have made significant change if it wasn't for the power of reason. So although I'm not negating what you're saying, I completely agree that curation is the problem, especially in an economically motivated world which can now shape curation in the way it wants to, I completely understand. But I'm also very optimistic, not in a Pollyannish way, but evidentiary from history, that reason has a stickiness, that 0.0001% has a stickiness that, that can, if done well with by people like yourself, and again, no pressure, and hopefully us and others, that it can it can have a stickiness. But but reality is time will tell. And we're stuck with this system anyway. So we have to find a way to make that reason more sticky. You're absolutely correct. Reason is sticky, but it's not intuitive. It has to be nurtured and encouraged. And often we learn by getting things horrifically wrong. That's how we learn when we're children. We learn partly by copying and partly by making disastrous mistakes. And well, maybe I shouldn't do that again. I'm currently training a puppy. When he makes a disastrous mistake, even he learns slowly. He's very cute. He gets away with it. Most creatures of any kind of cognitive complexity can do things. We learn, we have capacity for learning. But reasoning itself, particularly higher level reasoning, has to be structured. One of the things I will say, to play devil's advocate slightly, and follow on on your last point, people always give out about social media. As it currently stands, they're probably kind of correct to do so. However, I think in the long term, there's something really positive about it. And what I mean by that is this, informational blindness has been something that humans have suffered for forever. But because it's been a relatively low level problem, or we can dismiss the problem, we've never actually had to, as a society, go bloody hell, how are we going to address the learning and the nurturing of reason? We've kind of relied on the fact that it is sticky. Some people, oh, academies exist and there's doctors and scientists. We haven't said on a societal level, we all need to be able to reason and critically think. But I think in the era of social media, it is obvious now that this is something that everyone has to have. This isn't just something that you give to your academics this is something that everyone whether you're working in a factory or as a post person or you know as, as a brain surgeon that you have to be able to do to function in society and I'm kind of hoping that we see this as a wake-up call whether it's the spread of misinformation the threatening to our health that a lot of the, the nonsense we come across can actually do I'm hoping it's a wake-up call that this is not something that should be at an ivory tower for academics and for people to protect jealously it should be shared like Prometheus sharing fire with everyone everyone should have this and needs to have it to function in society where information overload is going to be the future. Your book is an incredibly important tool yeah. for everybody. We've shared it with our audiences yes. repeatedly because I agree with you. When people say common sense, I know that I, that conversation is dead. <laughs> Goodbye. Define common. Define sense. We need to start off with it, some it, parameters it just, here. <laughs> it's a person that's trying to just surrender to what they understand and that they not push their brain. So one of the first steps is to kind of not demonize, but show light about 
the kind of language that silences the mind, that silences reasoning, that doesn't push you into the difficult areas, the dissonant areas of your mind. The second area I think is very important is for us to become aware of the importance of becoming aware of our own biases. We will never be fully aware of all our biases, but that's a critical place to become aware of. People just become so siloed and on all sides, everybody's siloed because it's comfortable. Yeah, you create yeah. communities. But realizing that that can be incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. Holding yourself accountable actually gets you to the higher place of awareness and even justice. It will get you to justice eventually. Lose the small battle, win the battle of science and, re and, and productivity later. We have to encourage people to find a pleasure in being wrong. There's a wonderful sensation when you go, Oh, I, I got that wrong and I'll never get that wrong again. I've learned something. We feel shame in, and I keep saying to people, there's no shame in being wrong. There is only shame in refusing to update your belief in the face of evidence and, and, and reason. Often in my life, I am the dumbest person in the room. Like right now, I'm the dumbest person in this conversation. And I love this. Some of those important things I've ever learned, I've learned by being horribly wrong. And when you mm -hmm. stop feeling shame and you start feeling like, oh, cool, I was so wrong about that. All right, I've learned something new. It becomes liberating. And I, I, yeah. I think... We don't like being wrong, but maybe we should. Being wrong is awesome because then you're going to be better in future. It's wonderful. I mean, this has been the case throughout history that the apex of evolution is now. They have a small imagination. Humanity can find higher and higher levels of truth and harmony, but it takes that push. It takes that, that finding of higher level of awareness and not protecting the concepts that you were born with or the concepts that you were given down. One of the things that they used to tell us was, my God, as if it was a pejorative, you guys have changed so much in your thinking. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, and then in 10 years, I hope you say that again, because if you don't, then I've, I've failed myself. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. If I've plateaued, I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel really bad about this. Yeah. 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 Never more than the, the era of COVID have we ever experienced challenge to the perception of scientists and being in a scientific body. I think that particular era was a great example of how people can just throw their hands up in the air and say, you know what, I'm just going to follow what I know and I'm just going to stick to my own anecdotes because there's so much misinformation out there. And I know that you were quite vocal about science and evidence-based medicine and following experts when making decisions. Could you touch on that as how that era actually changed us and looking into the future, how we as science communicators, what are our responsibilities? It's a brilliant question and I'll try to do it justice, but I promise nothing. So weirdly enough, my COVID experience from science communication was probably a little bit different. So I had a media profile over in Europe, and when this novel pathogen emerged, I suddenly had journalists from around Ireland and the UK and, and Germany ringing me for comments. And the comments were always like, when will the pandemic be over? And I would say, that question is unanswerable. I said, if you want to get closest to the answer or someone who can guide you in the right direction, here's a public health specialist. I would try to direct them. But what they were looking for, the journalists at the time, they were looking for someone to give a simple answer. I pulled myself out a little bit from mainstream media communication at the time because I said, look, this is not my main wheelhouse. This is a major public health emergency. And I think mainly at the beginning of it, I said, this should be public health scientists talking more than me. Even though I did some public health work, it wasn't an infectious disease. And I wanted to step back and let the infectious disease people speak and the epidemiologist. But what I found what happened was you would get scientists and doctors who had very strong opinions, not necessarily evidence-based opinions. 
and they would be quoted in the media and they'd suddenly go go to media people where they would make confident predictions about how COVID was going to pan out. On the other side, I was working with modeling groups and people who are working for governments and going, we have no idea. What I found was people don't always understand how science works. They would quote, this professor says COVID's going to be over next month. And I'm like, so what? He's an idiot. He's not speaking from an evidence-based <laughs> perspective. And they'd look at me confused and go, but he's a professor. I, I mean, I, I know it sounds very harsh, but to me, I felt that some scientists let the side down badly. You do have to caveat the hell out of everything. You're like, look, based on these projections, this would happen. On these projections, this would happen. And the biggest thing that scientists have to do is explain uncertainty, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. I wrote a few pieces at the beginning saying, look, science will evolve. It's transient. I wanted the public to be aware that, look, if the scientific advice changes, which it will, that's not because science is not doing its job. It's because science is doing its job. But I realized there was a disconnect. People wanted scientists to be priests who just gave the holy answer and this is what she'll be. And I said, that's not how science works. I mean, scientists are frequently wrong and then correct themselves and, and do everything else. So there was people who let them, I, I felt let side down by, by being overconfident. But there was a new emergent group of people, particularly younger people, people like yourselves, who came out there and actually communicated well, communicated with nuance and used new mediums to do so. I still have conversations with the public now, say there's a scientist saying something that's absolutely wrong or selling a supplement that absolutely has no evidence for it. And they'll still say to me, but that person's qualified. I'm like, look, we can't use an argument from authority. Science is about assessing information in totality. And if they're just bamboozling you with their credentials, individually, they don't overrule scientific totality and consensus. So that made me realize that there's so many gray areas that we're left to communicate. And that's one thing I always try to keep in mind. I rarely give black and white answers unless the topic is black and white. Sometimes they are. Like if people go, oh, are vaccines causing autism? No, they're not. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but there's other things where you have to go, look, this is complicated. Overall, the evidence suggests this. It's a bit of a mess. So I think learning to communicate risk and uncertainty it was a big thing that the younger or the online generation of science communicators are probably doing well than some of their uh, more traditional media forebears. Human consciousness has grown over time with language. Language not in so much as nouns and verbs, and, but, but awareness and greater vocabulary. This is that next phase, which is becoming aware of anecdotes. That's what the next phase is, is people like yourselves and hopefully us making people aware. One of the common things that people say is, oh, this guy won the Nobel Prize. I said, I don't care. How many Nobel Prize winners after they got, won the Nobel Prize, now they want to do something even more crazy outside of their field and they come up with this crazy theory as if because they got a Nobel Prize that we should listen to them. Linus Pauling, Luc Montagier, we could name a lot of names here. Minerals, yeah, yeah. So we tell people, doesn't matter how many degrees we have. The thing we're saying, does it have a logical sequence? Does it have the data? Is it strong enough? Is it robust enough? Hold us by that, not by anything we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Not even 10 minutes earlier. If you liked us 10 minutes earlier, the next word coming out of me, my mouth, if it's nonsensical, challenge it. Yeah. And I think people are becoming aware of that. This appeal to authority, these fallacies are becoming more, more knowledgeable and more known. Absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm very optimistic because of that. I love that you're optimistic. It's actually nice to hear optimism now and then, because usually I wake up every morning going, what the fresh hell? So that's nice <laughs> you know. I think human capacity to find higher levels of consciousness is a remarkable tool that we've demonstrated. It takes conversations and clarification of language in a very palatable way, the way you do it. And hopefully that's, that's our job. Actually, our job is not, I'm a neurologist and a nutritionist and, and a, nope. 
we think that our primary job is to kind of humbly transfer awareness about how to distill data, how to curate data. We're, we're all scared of death, let's face it. No one really wants to die. And because we're acutely aware of that, one of the, uh, the joys of, of being a human is that you are aware you will eventually die one day. And most of us are trying to find a way to, to both improve our quality of life and the extent of life. So I can see why people cling to these things, particularly simple narratives. Like, if I do this, I won't get cancer. If I do this, I'll never get heart disease. I think people, again, want the protective charm. We made a video that said that uh, the amount of alcohol that's been shown to be good for your brain is zero, and I got demolished. You're probably right. The yeah. hate mail. Yeah, the hate mail. <laughs> the but, hate mail. But, 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 but I said, you know, I drink. It's never black and white. It's a small amounts. But at least I'm not going to create science for my hypocrisy. But at the same time, I don't do the other way as well. The other side, which is put everything into a bucket of binary zero or one. We'll take a moment halfway through discussing this fascinating topic to talk about Neuro Academy, an online community for those who are interested in learning more about living a brain healthy life. Neuro Academy is an online community of over 500 members now, and its goal is to help you expand your knowledge about the latest advances in brain health and applying all that knowledge towards your well being. It's one thing to have the knowledge, but a completely different experience to have a team of experts that will help you translate that knowledge into your daily life and Neuro Academy serves both of those goals. Dive into a collection of on-demand courses that cover various aspects of brain health, whether you're interested in learning about optimal nutrition, exercise, building resilience, or the science of lifestyle choices and cognitive well-being, you'll find courses to satisfy your curiosity. Plus, you can earn certifications and request CE and CME credits. Every Monday, join us for a live Q&A session, get direct answers to your burning questions and interact with the lovely community. On Fridays, participate in our live cooking sessions to learn brain-boosting recipes that you can make in your own kitchen. And if you're a culinary enthusiast, connect with like-minded members in the Neuro Cooking Club where you can share your passion for brain-healthy cuisine. There are various interest clubs such as the Neuro Book Club, Exercise Club, Gardening Club, and more. Visit neuroacademy.com to learn more and invest in your brain's well-being for a brighter, healthier future. Now let's get back to our discussion. One of the things that keeps coming back over and over again, and as a mother to two teenage kids, this is like the, the core of our conversations, <clears throat> the concept of being uncomfortable with a concept. Not everybody is good at that. Oh no. Being comfortable <laughs> with something that you don't necessarily agree with, something that is quite foreign, something that you don't have experience in, something that is almost being imposed on you by a governing body. And you're told that just be uncomfortable because this is the best way for you to live. And at the same time, there yeah. are so many choices around you that it almost becomes a paradox. I want us to talk to individuals who are going through that. Who do they listen to? Okay, great. Expertise is important. This guy has a PhD, an MD, scientist, blah, 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 whatever, right? But being okay with nuance and being okay with not knowing is also a place where people are not very used to. How do you talk to someone who's uncomfortable? I came at this from the, the vaccine hesitancy space where a lot of my research is based. And I started doing that in like 2014 or something. So way before the pandemic, but it was vaccine hesitancy has always been a bit of a problem and a growing one. I should also point out acceptance or rejection of scientific beliefs is a spectrum. You're not just pro-science or anti-science or anti-vaccine, pro-vaccine. There's extremes that are, but the majority of people lie somewhere in a spectrum of being comfortable with an idea 
or very uncomfortable with them, more leaning towards rejection or acceptance. In Ireland in 2015, we had a confidence crisis over the HPV vaccine. If your listeners don't know, it's human papillomavirus. It is the virus that causes cervical cancer, anal cancer, some throat cancers and, and head and neck cancers, and it's preventable by a vaccine. So good news, right? But um, for a variety of reasons, certain countries were affected by confidence prices. Japan, Denmark, Ireland, Colombia were the big ones. And uptake in some countries in Japan had dropped from 70% to 1% within a year. Ireland went from 86% to 50%. We were able to reverse it. And there was a few ways we did that. And one of the ways the government very farsightedly did, I think, is they got a coalition of scientists and doctors to talk to people who had concerns. And I was one of them. A fantastic patient advocate, Laura Brennan, went out there and literally said, well, I'm dying of cervical cancer and if I had the vaccine, I wouldn't. So if you're scared, I'm going to tell you I'm the reality of an unvaccinated girl. She was phenomenal. And and I I dedicated the book to her as well for for that reason. But when it comes to people uncomfortable, the very first thing I found when I sit with parents one-on-one is not to make a judgment call. It's to say, tell me what's getting to you. And oftentimes when people describe their fears, You'll find out what you were about to put them into your mental filing cabinet, what you were going to assume was their problem. It's actually not their problem. They know they're they're, they're 80% accepting, but maybe there's something they don't, or maybe they're 60% accepting. And what I tend to do is plant seeds, right, with people when they're uncomfortable. I go, look, tell me what you think, and they'll tell me something, and maybe I know it's wrong. But instead of saying, you're absolutely wrong, idiot, shut up, that's not going to endear it. What I will say instead is, okay, so I don't, really believe that and I'll tell you why I said here's what I think is it possible that what I've said might be an alternative explanation for you and I go you don't need to answer now we just I just want you you don't have to even agree with me I just want you to keep it in your mind and think about it and oftentimes you plant enough seeds and people change their own mind you're both cognitive scientists and you know this better than me but you never change anyone else's mind you give them the tools to change their own and in fact you've never changed your mind because someone else made you Someone else gave you the seeds and planted them. And in social media, you can be very performative. You want to be, I'm the right one. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but conversations one-on-one are really important to address people's fears and concerns. And if people are uncomfortable with nuance, I often consider conversation with them. Like, well, well, tell me from your perspective. And this is really important with family members, by the way. And I, you saw it during the pandemic. People had family members didn't want to get vaccinated or, or were scared of something. One-on-one conversation is really important and not to jump down someone's throat. I mean, that's from a strategic point of view, is a good idea in general. No one agrees with you because you attack them. We're pretty human. If someone attacks us, we don't like them. It's pretty much how we react. I know logically you'd say, well, we shouldn't. Yeah, and you're right. But when our ideas are attacked, we feel like we're being attacked. And it's wrong. And we need to try and divorce ourselves from that. But you have to get a lot of practice before you're Mm -hmm. you're comfortable with that. So it's getting people slowly comfortable with uncertainty when they come with you with a belief that maybe is a little bit on the dodgy side going, okay, I see where that's coming from, but let's delve into it and let me give you, I deal with this conspiracy theorist as well, let me give you an alternative idea that might explain the same thing you're seeing and make more sense of it. And then I go, and I leave that with you. I don't want you to straight away argue with me or, I mean, I'm just planting it out there. And then you might talk to them two weeks later and you'd be surprised how many people go, yeah, I thought about that. And yeah, actually, I, I think this now. And I'm like, great. Well done you. Absolutely. And, and I think those kinds of conversations of opposing views that are recorded and then promulgated is, is critical because it's never about the conversation. Whenever we have debates in, 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 in groups, 
And, and, and we always have our kids with us. If you're having a little bit of a contentious argument with the person in front of you, that person is going to be closed. The people outside, even if they have opposing views, they're not feeling attacked, at least not directly. And that's actually where the growth takes place. Open debates about these concepts are critical. And I, one thing I was shocked at was there was a lot of tangential crossfires as far as debate during the pandemic. It was people talking in their own silos. I would have loved it if there was much more debates of opposing views curated, spread out in a way that's not cut into clickbait. I actually think, thought that if somebody could create an emotional platform where reason-based arguments are fully, cleanly, algorithmically placed in a, in, a, in a setting, people will find themselves in there. Whatever the argument and different little videos and debates within them, it would be wonderful. There is one caveat I should add to that. You're sitting with people who might disagree with you, but are really interested in where you're coming from and they're receptive to things. So sometimes when I'm getting an argument with someone, I know it's going to be an argument, I go, look, what information could I give you that would make you change your mind? And if the answer is nothing, I'm like, okay, well, there's no point in us having a discussion yeah. then. And then they'll say, well, what would change your mind? I go, oh, loads of things. Like, for example, if I had, I had a debate with a guy years ago who thought the moon landing was a hoax. And I said, here's five or six things that could change my mind. And obviously the moon landing did happen and I was arguing that point. But I said, if you wanted to show this was a hoax, here's the five things you could show me. And any one of them would show me that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, and I go, well, what could I show you? And he's like, well, nothing, because I know it's all a hoax. I'm like, well, I go, you don't yeah. know that. I said, but you're not receptive to it. And this is a performative debate. And I know because I did debating in college a lot of the time. It's great fun, but it is often performative. You're trying to get style points. And I mean, social media is great. Those, those little curated clips, they're all about style points. What is more important in debate is discussion. Because discussion has the fluidity where do you ever sit down with, you sit with a, for a friend for a drink or a meal and you disagree on something and you start going back and forth in it. But you eventually arrive at a weird consensus where you may not fully agree with each other, but you've both given each other enough food for thought to kind of slightly shift your positions. And that's how consensus and agreement is found. Debate, because you start off and you have to have point X and it has to stay at point X, is sometimes kind of not conducive to people actually changing their minds. And it's also very, very beneficial for people who are very good at uh, rhetorical dexterity. I mean, I look at UK politicians, they're all Oxford debate school kids. And oftentimes they're very good at putting a convoluted argument for something that's absolutely logically bogus but they do it with such beautifully verbose language that you don't realize they're talking nonsense until you stop and think for 10 seconds of what they're saying <laughs> and we don't want style over substance we want substance over style i think discussion lends itself better to that but i'm in total agreement with you a platform where people could have discussions that were like respectful and didn't have bad faith actors the other caveat i say is occasionally even on my social media i'll be a bit snide to someone i try not to be but if I'm doing it, the reason I'm doing it is I'm aware of the audience thing. And I'm aware of it because I will only be that way to people I know are bad faith. As in, I've clicked on their feed and realized that all they're doing is putting out anti-vaccine propaganda and they're lying about things. They have no interest. And they're jumping you, I want to debate you. I'm like, no, you don't. You don't want to discuss or debate. What you want to do is keep making your point, hoping you'll capture some of the audience on this page. I'm not going to let you do that. But anyone who comes in and goes, I'm a bit scared about vaccines. Cool, we can have a discussion. That's fine. But if you're just lying and pretending you have this is not my first rodeo i've been doing this for 15 years i'm not going to waste my time with you so true. you know so true you have to have an honest participant the, the the fact that you just raised the idea of good faith this concept is not out there this is a very central concept that should be present in everybody's consciousness that if you're going to get in a debate i mean this is human history arguments yeah. arguments what does it mean to be a good faith person in a discussion that you're actually open there are things that people can tell you that could change your mind. 
that concept is actually not available to everybody. No, not at all. So, so it's, it's some of these concepts that, 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 that need to be promulgated, that need to be spread, that, that uh, if 20% don't accept it at all, it becomes part of the consciousness, their vernacular of the other 80, 70, 60%, which, which moves humanity forward. I love those concepts. I think they seem like such unsexy, uninteresting concepts. Those are the very foundation of human consciousness moving forward. What is a good faith discussion? And am I open? And what would it take for me to change my mind? There, that's where we start. You're right. If, if we shift consciousness to the point where these are common terms and common ideas, it goes for not just science. This goes for politics and everything else. I am so tired of watching people on political parties or different countries or whatever else trying to point score, trying to just have the sound bite, have the killer clip, have the sexy headline. What I'm really interested in, what are you going to do? What's your policy? What is the solution to this problem? I'm not interested in just the sound bite. But of course, they're thinking about elections. They're thinking about what will sell to their base, whatever else. And in some ways, that can be bad faith. I mean, one of the things I would define as bad faith is if someone is willing to lie to emphasize their preconceived notion. I don't mind people having a preconceived notion. We all go in to some extent yeah. to a preconceived notion. Yeah. But if, if you're willing to lie and misrepresent evidence to support that, that can be very frustrating because you're like, well, once or twice it can be a mistake. But three or four times you're seeing a pattern here. Not to use anti-vaccine activists, but they're a good example of that. Because often, like, most anti-vaccine activists will use euphemistic language. They will not say, I'm, well, some of them do, but most of them will not say, I'm openly I'm anti-vaccine. They'll come up with a euphemism, such as pro-safe vaccine. The implication mm -hmm. being, everyone else is against safe vaccination. Well, actually, no. Everyone who works in immunology or public health or pediatricians, they're all pro-safe vaccine. That's why you have people regulating vaccines. So they create a uh, linguistic trick to try and put a subtle perception in that there is a counter to that. And that kind of stuff frustrates me because I'm like, you are hiding behind euphemisms to make points that have been made since the 1700s and they weren't made well then. So, you know, you're, you're, you're not being as creative as you think you are. And I often get it. Well, how do you know he's anti-vaccine? I'm like, because he's constantly shared lies about vaccines. And every time someone corrects him, he ignores the correction. I'm going to know that's a bad faith actor. I, had, I won't name names, but a very prominent medical doctor in the US who's famous for being anti-vaccine wanted me in his podcast to debate him. And I said, no. And I said no because it was false balance. I knew exactly this was not going to be a conversation where we could, where he had fears about the safety and I could maybe assuage them. It was going to be a thing that he wanted to have the clip bait where he said something that looked like he won, cut the clip out, and then said that to his followers to increase his Substack's prescriptions and his monetization. And I wrote about for Scientific Americans, Peter Hotez wouldn't go on the Joe Rogan show, and I agreed with him entirely. I said, I know the audience you're going on with, that's exactly what they want, to have you as a punching bag to make their bad arguments look better. And they'll clip it and they'll curate it, so. I have a challenge to that. If one side of an argument is dominated by bad faith actors, or if not dominated, there is much greater visibility in that realm and they can do harm. Don't you think that we have to find a way to find debate mechanisms or create debate situations that despite the bad faith actor, highlighting the bad faith component first and why this is so critical in any discussion, and then showing the bad faith component of the op opposition is critical because otherwise you're actually leaving the floor open to the lowest denominator discussions, simplified discussions that are popular, they are emotional, they're emotive, yep. and they're, they can get clickbaits, they can get monetization, and they can do profound amount of damage because people like yourselves and us don't want to get into the 
battleground of bad faith? It's a brilliant question, and I have thought about it a bit because I've written a good bit about false balance, which is the thing we're trying to avoid, where you don't want to put a bad faith actor with a poor argument on an equal footing to someone who has all the evidence and has, has a solid argument because it misrepresents the public. But you still need to address fears and uncertainties. When vaccines started being rolled out for COVID here, I did a lot of media work over here where actually I would address fears and I'd, I'd, I'd encourage, look, let's get a, a parent on who's a bit hesitant, who's a bit scared, and we'll have a discussion. That's 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 really good. And they can ask questions yeah. and it's, it's live radio or it's a podcast or live TV and there's a back <clears> and forth. I'm not there as the pro-vaccine guy. I'm there as this is what the evidence says and that's really, and here's what this is and you've heard this scary thing. Let's break it down and see how true it is or how not true it is. That's really useful public broadcasting. That's great stuff, right? And I love that stuff. You shouldn't censor things. It's not, it's not hiding away any discussion of this. It's putting the discussion in a proper context. What you don't want to do is have some absolute, you know, shyster who's always trying to spread disinformation put on a platform that massively amplifies them to spread that disinformation because they are not going to have an honest conversation about it. They're going to try and put these bits of fear in as many people as possible. So the way you balance that, I think, is that you don't not discuss the scary things. You absolutely do. But you make sure you discuss them with a very good moderator. This is very important. The person who is moderating it, whether it's a TV show or whatever else, they have to be pretty good at assessing it. I tell you what, BBC in the UK are a good example. They have excellent researchers. So before you've even gone on, they've researched to check how in line with the evidence the position you're going to be saying is, and they will call you on it. The host will go, that's actually not evidence-based, or this is, and that's good, right? A good a good uh, moderator is excellent. That's why Joe Rogan is not a good moderator. Because you could tell him sandwiches are causing cancer. He'll go, really? That's crazy. he just repeated. <laughs> He's not a well-informed person in that yeah. regard. Whereabouts BBC in the UK would be. And there's lots of examples. PBS in the EU, and then CNN would probably do their homework too. Fox News, let's not go there. But um, So moderation is important for these discussions. It sounds good. But also you need to realise the public service remit of these kind of conversations. And I mean public service in the widest sense. I also mean for raising consciousness as well. We want to leave people more informed, not less informed. You don't want to where just people shout at each other and try to get their, their talking points or their little YouTube clip or whatever out of it. What you want is people to watch or listen, like hopefully people will listen or watch this and go, okay, these are really good points for me to think about. These are the seeds. That's where I go, let's plant the seeds. But the seeds have to be evidence-based. And people can disagree. For example, we can disagree about how we should implement policy, but not about the facts of that policy. We're all yeah. entitled to our own opinions and our own interpretations, but not our own facts. You and I might read a paper and it has a bit of evidence and maybe it's ambiguous and I think it means this and you'll go, no, 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 no. I think it more lends itself to this. And that's great. We have a great discussion about that, but we're still agreeing on the same set of facts. What you mm -hmm. shouldn't have is one person coming in with all the evidence and all the facts and the other person going, I, that, I don't believe that and getting the same airtime. There's an Irish comedian I love, maybe he's not big in the States, but he's called Dara Breen. Very funny, big in the UK. And he's a scientist by training. And he has a line about false balance. And he says, look, it's it's very lazy media for, or very lazy for media organizations to get one person in and just put them on the same pedal as someone else who has an opposite opinion. You shouldn't do that with, with science and medicine. He goes, it would be like if you had a guy in talking about a moon launch and he's going on, he's from NASA and he's telling you about everything. And he goes, and just for balance, we're going to put on Barry. And Barry thinks that the sky is a carpet painted by God. You wouldn't have that debate because it would be senseless. And he's like, why do we do that with science and medicine? And that's a very good point. 
We need to, we can have, there's loads of things to discuss, loads of arguments and discussions to be had on policy, but the facts are the facts and we all need to have the same set of facts to have those discussions. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. That's a lot of work. We have a, our work cut out for us as a scientific community. What is our responsibility to improve transparency, welcome the public into these nuanced discussions and to kind of mitigate their unwarranted skepticism? I know that, you know, conversation is a starting point, but if you could just kind of give us a statement of people listening to, uh, out there who are in the scientific community, what is their responsibility right That's now? That's an excellent question. And it actually ties into my other major research area, which is meta research. I'm really interested in improving the quality of research. And I never want people to think science is bad. Science always collectively moves towards being more correct. That does not mean all science is good. That means that the scientific method is self-correcting. But there's an awful lot of research that is published that is spurious or the false positives or, or, or absolutely over-extrapolating limited data. So what I would say to scientists and science communicators is to be very wary, and you've said it at the beginning of this conversation, not over extrapolating from limited data be so important to report the, the limitations of of your of your your hypothesis of, of your evidence to be very important to go even though it's really easy to get a sexy headline by overstating your evidence to always resist that urge and always to keep in mind what could make my experiment wrong or my conclusions wrong and communicate that particularly if it would have health risks or societal risks to the public some things won't some things are just fun or minor or whatever else i had a paper guitar physics years ago no one's going to be harmed if that was wrong but if i had a paper on say you know brain cancer therapy or whatever that might have a different effect if i was mm -hmm. over extrapolating my conclusions and the other thing is when you talk to the public the public might not be experts in your area but the vast majority of people are quite intelligent and able to reason with things so don't bamboozle them people often have a politeness nod and, and pretend they've understood when you might have lost them so i often stop even my students i'm like wait almost get them to explain it back to you to make sure that you're on the same page because that's how you avoid misunderstandings happening where you're like constantly and you might have to change your language oftentimes you have to go okay that term is being misunderstood like the great one for me is significant when i were talking about statistics i'm like oh that that's going to be horribly misunderstood so i'm going to have to change that when i'm talking to someone else and make it a conversation i mean i'll leave it with just make yeah. it a conversation when the public yeah, can talk yeah. to scientists and educators <clears throat> and doctors, that's already wonderful. Let's just keep the standards of evidence really high and wish something to be true. Don't just cling at evidence that seems to suggest that and ignore the evidence that counters it. Always be guided by the evidence, no matter what you think personally. Beautiful. I think that's a, just a beautiful statement. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. I, we were going to go into the details of food. And, we were. And, and, and a different kind I of study. everything that, again, damn it. No, 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 not, not food, but, but no, like no. Uh, environmental stuff. And But but the reality is we, we're going to have to have many conversations with yeah. you. This is, to us, one of the most important conversations we have yeah. if we can even open up one element of thought process or pathway or segment of thought process it's 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 more important than anything uh, specific as far as some some particular research that we could be talking about one of the things that we did in our school system you know algebra is great calculus is great but statistics let's teach statistics yeah let's teach people kids early on how to look at statistics how to look at numbers how to interpret these numbers, how to extrapolate and not extrapolate, how to identify the strength of data, the strength of evidence, yeah. strength of information around you. I can't believe that that's not a topic of logical fallacies, cognitive tools to traverse the data landscape that you live in. Those are critical things to actually add to the curriculum. In today's world with all this information around us, which is great, 
But without those tools or without some semblance of those tools, it becomes cacophony. And cacophony always goes towards anxiety. Anxiety goes towards tension and aggression and violence. Too much information, too much chaos, tension builds up and manifests in all kinds of... But just simple tools of logic, reason, data analysis uh, that can start very early on. Those are not complicated. And being comfortable by saying, I don't know. Yeah. If there are things that we don't know, we should just say, I don't know. And that's a beautiful thing. It feels good. Weirdly enough, when you don't know something, you are in a lovely position because you can learn something new. If you knew everything, life would be very boring. If you went to a movie and you knew everything was going to happen... It'd be very boring. So I think life is more interesting and more enjoyable when you're always learning, not when you think you know everything. Absolutely. Well, David, we didn't even touch, you know, <laughs> like probably like 80% of all the questions that we had for you. But I feel that we need to continue this conversation if you're willing. We would love to actually have you come back and maybe do a brainstorming session on some of that. the fantastic topics that you've you've talked about on your in your book and in, on your social media. We absolutely love it, and we're so grateful to have you here. Well, I I, I love you guys. So anytime, just just let me know. Um, I mean, eight hour. You're up early in the morning. This is for anyone listening. There's an eight hour time difference, but you know. I'll do it at four in the morning, no problem. So whatever suits you, just let me know. Oh, no, this the, is good. we might even come and visit you there. We'll do it in person, come, hopefully, yeah. sometime. Absolutely, come to Dublin. Yeah. I mean, I'm in California a few times as well, so we'll see what we can work out. Amazing. Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Thank David. you so much. Oh, to be continued. Absolutely, folks. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.